1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and uh, Stu will bring you a Bible so you can follow along with us in our Bible study. In this first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this younger man, this younger pastor, Timothy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is seeking to write to him in order to establish order in the local church. And everything that he has said thus far, as we've looked at these chapters, is crescendoing towards the end of chapter 3, where he will say to Timothy in verse 15, these things, he says, I write unto you so that you may know how ye ought to behave yourself in the church of the living God. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, giving him instruction on how and what the church is to be about. And 1 Timothy has been an extraordinary rudder, you know, that part of the ship that steers and keeps it on course. It's been a great rudder throughout the past 2,000 years of church history, keeping the church on track so that we know what it is to be a church and we know what we're to be doing as a church. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, seeking to give him this instruction. In chapter 1, he talked about the church and its message, the doctrine of the church, and how imperative it is that we stay the course doctrinally and not water it down or turn it into something it's not. In chapter 2, the church and its Messiah, that is that Jesus is the head and he's the one that sets the order for what we're to be about, that we're to be people of prayer, people of intercession, as he goes through in chapter 2 and talks about what we're to give ourselves to. And then as we started last week in chapter 3, the church and the men that God has called and appointed, or rather the type of men that God has called and appointed to lead his church. Now last week we got all the way through three verses. As we began looking at chapter 3 and the type of men that God uses as he leads his church. Now before you laugh, we actually accomplished quite a bit. Because what we did last week is we looked at 14 out of 17 attributes or characteristics that God desires to see in men that lead the church. And, and, and what we discovered as we looked at this is that it isn't just about people that lead the church. That the characteristics and attributes that Paul is listing is the characteristics and attributes of all godly leaders... And we realize that all of us are called to lead in some respect. Whether you're a mother, or whether you're a coach, or whether you're a, a mentor, or a teacher, or you know, a daycare worker, or a babysitter, or an older sibling, all of us are called to lead. And these are the attributes that God is seeking to work into the fiber of who we are. It's what he's seeking to make us. And the reason why Paul is addressing it to pastors is because if the church of Jesus Christ is going to bring forth these attributes, then it's essential that they be real in the lives of those that are leading. And so he's speaking to the pastor, but he's through the pastor speaking to each one of us, telling us these are the things that God is seeking to build into our lives. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 13, God spoke concerning all of his people. And he says that the Lord shall make you. And he's speaking to the whole nation, to all of his people, Israel, and now to us. He says, God will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall be above only. And you shall not be beneath if thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. And so God's desire for his people is that we are all leaders, that each one of us is an example of the Lord to a lost world, and that people can look at our lives and see what it is to follow Christ. And so this this chapter is so priceless for us as we look at these things and realize the things that God is, is building into our lives. It applies to us. Now, Because it's written to pastors, and I'm not smart enough to think about all the various applications as I go through it, I'm teaching it as though it's spoken to pastors. So the Holy Spirit give you wisdom as how it applies to you in your life, and also understanding as to how it applies in the church, as Paul wrote it to Timothy. So as we pick up tonight in verse 4, we continue with these attributes that he writes to him about, and he says there in this next one in verse 4, he says, he is to be one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, out of the 17 things that Paul writes to Timothy that are essential in God's mind as it relates to his leaders, this is only the second. It's the second of two. So there are only two, and this is the second of two that have anything to do with ability. Now, isn't it interesting that you would think that you know, if God was going to pick someone out, that he would give a list of things that all have to do with ability. He should have the ability to do this and the ability to do And God's almost as if he's saying, that's not my concern. I'm not worried about if he has ability. I'm worried about if he has character. And so 15 of the 17 are all character-related, issues of the heart. But there are two that do have to do with ability. The first one we saw last week was that he should be apt to teach instructive, able to explain. And then here is the second one, the second ability or gifting, you could say, that he's to have, and that he's to have the gift of ruling. He says that he should be one who can rule over his own house well, having his children in subjection with all authority. The word ruling there, the the definition of the word in the Greek means to superintend, to preside, to maintain, to care for. That's what the word means. And and the other place that we see this word is in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul wrote and he gave a list of what are are known as ministry gifts of the Spirit. And and there's a list of seven things there that, that God gives, abilities, if you would, that God gives to people, not just special people, but to all people that are intended to help them serve in the body. They're, they're not supernatural things like we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, there we read about discerning of spirits and miracles and healing and, you know, all of those manifestation, almost supernatural things that we read of there. Not in Romans. In Romans, they're very natural things like the ability to serve, a gift to serve, an inclination to serve. 
The gift to teach, he mentions there in Romans 12. You know, and the gift of mercy, the gift of hospitality, he lists there. And there in verse 8, he mentions the gift of ruling. Him that rules, let him rule with diligence. It's the same thing. It's the ability to administrate or the ability to organize or to rule or govern. All of those things are used uh, in that context. And it's listed there in those gifts. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is that a person who is an elder in the church or who leads the church should have the gift of administrations at least equivalent to what it takes to rule a household. And it's an interesting thing, you know, to consider because most pastors are judged upon their ability to teach or to communicate. And yet what I've discovered is that it's a whole lot harder to run a household than it is to teach a Bible study. I could teach a Bible study the first week I was saved. I mean, I could understand something and share it with someone, and I was teaching. It wasn't from a pulpit, but I was doing that from the first day. It took me years to learn how to run a household. I mean, if you want to run a household, you have to know a lot of things. You have to know a little bit about cleaning and maintenance and repair. Because that, that's just reality. You, if you have a household, you have to clean it. You have to maintain it. Things break and you have to fix them. You have to know a little bit about organization and space use. I I remember our first apartment. We had one bedroom and and we had three kids while we lived in that apartment. We had one bedroom, you you know, and, and talk about space use and organization. I mean, we had shelves lining up and down the hallway. And, you, you know, you, you ever see when you were a kid, they, they, they sold these little things that look like pills? And you would buy them at like a gift shop or something and you'd take them home and you'd put them in water and it would turn into like this dinosaur. That's what happened when we moved. You know, when we moved out of one bedroom, we moved into a house and it was like, we filled the house, you know, the first day. And, and, and there was nothing new. It was all that same stuff. And so you have to know how to do that. And, and we all can relate. There's, a, there's always so much stuff and yet so little storage space. And so it's essential knowing how to be organized and how to use your space. It's part of householding. You have to know how to keep a budget and track your expenses. It's an essential part of running a household. You have to know how to delegate and make roles for people. I mean, when, when you have a whole list of responsibilities that have to be done in in a certain amount of time that they need to be done. You need to learn how to help people help you. You know, like the kids, your job is this bathroom every day, or your job is emptying the dishwasher, and your job is pay the bills, Rocky. You know, and, 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 you know, you have to do that because otherwise stuff doesn't get done because there's only so many hours in a day, you know. You have to know a little bit about crisis management. What do you do when, you know, the washing machine eats a sweater and the water that was supposed to drain out into a drainage pipe, you know, drains out onto the floor? You know, how do you, how do you deal with it? And you've got to know how to deal with those things and, and kind of, you know, have a curveball thrown at you from time to time. And you have to know how to establish and maintain discipline, you know, in getting things done and doing things. And there's a thousand other things that go into just running a household. There's a lot to it, you know. And to do all of that with patience and wisdom and flexibility, you know, and and to do all of it. And at the same time, 
not neglect your children or your wife if you're a man or your husband if you're a woman, but to, to keep the human element involved. And so there's a lot that goes into managing a household. It's not just, you know, you pay the bills and you turn a key and, and there it is, it's all done. You know, there's, there's a lot to it. And it's interesting, you think about this, you know, I find that there's two types of people when it comes to just this issue of keeping a house. You have the one group of people on this side that they're so meticulous at maintaining the house, you know, the physical aspect. They keep it so clean and they're, I mean, they dust on top of the doors and the place is always spotless and, and there's never a footprint or a fingerprint on anything and the place just is always pristine and things are painted once a year and it's perfect. And they're so good at that. They're organized. They have everything in its place. But yet oftentimes those people, their kids, they're neglected. You know, they're not involved in their lives or their kids sometimes are resentful because of how strict their parents are about the things of the house it's one extreme then you get the other extreme and you get the ones that are so into the kids everything is the kids the kids the kids you know the sports the, and that's good you know i'm not at all saying that that's a bad thing but often it's to the neglect of the household and so the place is filthy and disgusting. Everything's out of order and a wreck. You know, now, if you're going to err on one side, you know, that's probably the side you want to err on. But the balance is that in keeping a household, you've got to be able to do the one and yet not neglect the other. And that's the example that Paul is now applying to those that lead in his church. And here's what you get in the church. You get two extremes. You get pastor administration. And pastor administration is so gifted, the church is run like a well-oiled machine. Everything is in its place, and everything is properly delegated and spread out, and all of the programs run perfectly, and everything is just so awesome all the time. The, the decor, the, you know, the drama, the programs, everything is just perfect in pastor administration's church. But at the expense... He's not feeding the flock of God in the way that the flock needs to be fed, getting the thing that's actually going to benefit them. They're being blessed by what they experience, perhaps, in a church meeting, but they're not being fed that which is going to cause them to grow. On the other extreme, you get pastor-teacher. And pastor-teacher feeds, 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 but there's absolutely no administration at all. And so the people are well fed, but there's disorder in the congregation and there's a lack and a quench of spiritual growth because people aren't finding their place in the body of Christ where they fit and how they function and how they grow. And so what Paul is saying is that you have to have the balance. There has to be the ability to feed, but there has to be the ability to rule. And so these things are essential. They come together, they dovetail in what the pastor is supposed to do. There has to be both. One that ruleth well his own household, has that ability, but also having his children in subjection. And here's the point that Paul's making. Is that if a man cannot do it at home, if a leader cannot run his household and keep it in order and also raise his children in the things of God, then how in the world is he going to be able to do it on the larger scale of the body of Christ? It's not going to work. The home is always the proving ground, the preparation ground for the greater spectrum of ministry. If it doesn't work at home, it's not going to work in the church. 
And that's true for each one of us, no matter what area of ministry God might be calling us into. If our Christianity doesn't work in our homes, it's not going to work wherever else it is that we're trying to put it. I heard a pastor say one time, if your faith doesn't work at home, don't export it. <laughs> you know, and, and there's a lot of truth in that. And so Paul is saying that there should be this ability to administrate at least equivalent to what it takes to run a household. And then he says in verse 6 that he's not to be a novice. That is, that he's not to be a new believer or inexperienced or unseasoned, what we would call green. You know, someone who, they, they, they're just fresh cut and they haven't had a chance to, to really grow and get rooted and grounded in the Lord and they don't understand things, that, that, that a, a leader in the church is not to be a novice, someone who's new. And then he gives the reason why. He says, lest being lifted up with pride, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. When Jesus was on the earth and he was training his disciples and they were with him for that three and a half year period of time, Luke tells us that there was one period where there were 70 disciples, 70 people following him, and that Jesus sent them out. And it says that he gave them power over unclean spirits and the ability to heal the sick, and he told them to preach the word. And so he gives these people kind of this, um, what's the word, uh, authority, temporal authority, you know, like, here you go, try it out. And he sends these people out to go and minister two by two, and then, and then they come back to Jesus. And when they returned to Jesus, it says that they said to him, they marveled, and they said, Master, even the demons are subject to us when we speak in your name. And, and they were overwhelmed by the authority that they had and the power they were given and the things that they saw happen when they were out there serving. And they came to Jesus and they said, even the demons are subject to us when we speak in your name. And then Jesus said something that almost doesn't make sense. His response, his reply to that was, I beheld Satan cast into the earth like lightning. And, and, and you know, and, and you're almost like, okay, Jesus, I, I get it. And, and then Jesus went on from that and he said, listen, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons were subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Why did Jesus use that example at that moment? Why did he say that? Was he trying to one-up them? Oh, you see the demons flee. You'd be amazed at the things I saw. You think you're something special casting out demons. I cast Satan out of heaven. No, no, no. That wasn't the point. That's not why Jesus said that. What he was pointing them to was beware of pride because it was for pride's sake that satan was cast out of heaven see it says right there in luke it says that jesus gave them authority over the spirits it wasn't something that they possessed in themselves it was given to them and the warning that jesus is giving to them and that is constantly being given to us is that if anything happens in our lives that is of any spiritual good, it has absolutely nothing to do with us. We have nothing to do with it. If there's fruit in our ministry or fruit in our family, our children walking in the things of God, 
or if God is blessing us in our career or at our job, or if he's given us prosperity in our business or our place in the community or our reputation, every single thing that we have as God's kids comes from him, and none of it has anything to do with us. It is all grace. And the minute we begin to think that it's because of me or because of something I have or a talent that I possess, as soon as we get that way, we are in danger of falling into the condemnation of the devil. Well, well, how does that work? I mean, that paints kind of a skewed picture of God, doesn't it? It's almost as if God is there in heaven and he's got, you know, this pride meter. You know, almost like a speedometer over each one of our names in heaven. And it's like a pride meter. And and he just watches it. And and it it almost gives me the idea that he's just waiting for the pride meter to to redline. And then he's just going to pull the bottom out and watch it fall, you know. And, and, And so, you know, is that what it is? Is there a pride meter? Is that what's going on? No, no, no. That's not what's going on. That's not God's heart. It's not the way he is. Here's, here's what it is, and, and I believe it's wise that Paul uses Satan as the example here. Because he, here you have Satan. And you can read about him in Isaiah chapter 14 and also in Ezekiel chapter 28. And the Bible tells us a lot of things about him. It tells us that he was exceedingly gifted. It tells us that his wisdom excelled. It tells him that he was beautiful excessively, abundantly beautiful. The Bible tells us that he was a gifted musician that even even made, created into his body were musical instruments and pipes. I mean, this glorious, beautiful, wise musical uh, instrument. The Bible tells us that he had a gift with economy of all things. It tells us the multitude of his merchandising, that he had a gift for those types of things even. And it also tells us that he was given an exalted and privileged position in heaven. That he was the anointed cherub that covers. And so he had all of these things going for him. The the most beautiful of all of God's creation. This exalted position that he, he had all of this. He was gifted, but he wasn't grounded. He didn't understand the power of God. He didn't know fully the person of God or the ways of God or the program of God. He didn't understand those things. And so he was gifted, but he wasn't grounded. And here's what happened. He began to think within himself that because I have these gifts, because I have all of this wisdom and this beauty and this influence and all of this this stuff, it must mean that God wants me to be a God. He wants me to be like him. He wants me to be him. I am being groomed to take over for God. And that's what came into his mind. You read that in Isaiah chapter 14. And he began to get lifted up in himself because of his giftedness, thinking, and here is the key, thinking that he was called or designed to be more than what he actually was called or designed to be. And when it didn't happen, he decided, you know what? I'm going to make it happen. It's not happening fast enough. It's not happening the way I thought it should. So I'm just going to help God along in this getting me into this position. And when it still didn't happen and he realized that that wasn't God's plan for his life, then he became bitter and his heart turned away from God. 
See, it wasn't there was a pride meter where God was just waiting for it to redline and then boom, he's out of here. But because of his pride and the fact that he got lifted up and he expected more from God than what God had designed for him, it turned his heart away from God. He became bitter at God and that was the source of his fall. And so it happens in the life of a young man is that he has a certain amount of giftedness or a certain amount of talent and he's gifted but he's not grounded. He doesn't understand the person of God fully or the plan of God or the power of God or the kingdom of God. He doesn't understand himself, his own depravity. He doesn't understand that. And so he begins to think, well, God God has given me these gifts. Well, he must want me to be the next Greg Laurie or Hillsong or you know, the next, and, and, and all of a sudden he begins to get lifted up in this pride, especially if he's being exalted in position in the church prematurely. And he begins to think that maybe the call of God on my life is a little bit more than what it actually is. And that can be destructive. Because when then those things don't happen, and it turns out that that's not the plan of God, or it's not the plan of God for right now, then the person can become bitter towards God and ultimately turn away from God. And that is the warning that the Apostle Paul is given. Listen, not just the young man who's got an ambition for ministry, but it can happen in any life of any Christian, of a person who refuses to be content in the thing that God has called them to be. When we begin to think that I won't be satisfied until I'm in this place or in this position, we're in a dangerous place. When we yield ourselves completely to God and say, God, your will be done in my life. You do what's best. We will ultimately find the place that we were created for and the place of our ultimate fulfillment. But when we get lifted up in pride thinking, oh, no, no, I was made for more than this. You're on a fast track to destruction. And so Paul gives this warning. Listen, get grounded in the things of God. Don't be ambitious to be elevated too quickly into a place of authority within the church that's only going to bring destruction upon you and so he gives him uh this this warning and then finally in verse seven he says that he's to be of good rapport uh he says there um moreover he must have a good rapport of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil and that is very simply that he's to have a good reputation with un believers uh you know it's an interesting um thing i was talking with someone in the church about a week ago who entered into a certain business transaction with a non-believer and the deal sort of went south and uh some property got damaged you know in the process and and there was kind of a back and forth about whose fault it was and you know there was some fine print that wasn't maybe written or read or or, or something and there was a back and forth and and, and really the, the 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 christian that i was speaking with was in the right in in this uh particular instance but as we were having the conversation this person came to me and they said but you know what I'm going to take the position of wrong. And they said, and here's why. Because I'm afraid that maybe someday that person's going to show up in church and see me there. And then what will their opinion of God be based upon, you know, the thing that went back and forth between us before? And I, and I just was convicted 
Like, oh, you know, that's, that's real Christianity. You know, that's, and that's exactly what Paul is getting at when he says, of good rapport of them that are without, lest he fall into the snare of the devil. That's the reason. See, Satan can't touch us. The Bible says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. He can yell at us. He can do a couple things. He can't touch us. But there is one thing that Satan can do and does do to every one of us relentlessly. And you know what that is? He watches us. He, and I know that's saying enough to make some of you lose sleep tonight. But don't lose sleep over it because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. But here's why Satan watches you. Is because he's a great analyst. And what he does is he looks for weaknesses and areas of compromise. And if he can find an area where we refuse to yield to the Spirit of God, what he does is he just begins to make a plan. He strategizes. And he'll begin to set up dominoes in such a way that if we continue in that, eventually we'll fall into the snare. Like he did with Samson. You know, you read the story and he had a problem with women. He would not yield it to, 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 to the Lord. He could conquer the Philistines, but he couldn't conquer his flesh. And Satan just set him up until the point where he was trapped and snared and it brought down the fruitfulness of the call that God had upon his life. And Satan does that. He'll do it to a, any Christian. He'll, he loves to do it to a pastor. If he can do it to a pastor, the stakes are much higher. You know, because he can bring down a lot of people with him. And so Paul says he must be this type of character that he's of good rapport. And so he gives these things, 17 things that he says that these are the qualifications of a pastor. Now, before I move on to deacons, which he starts in verse 8, I want to just lay the disclaimer. You know, the fine print at the bottom of this sermon is this. Is that all of these things are a lifetime work that God accomplishes in a life. I don't sit here tonight and claim as though all of these things or even any of these things are true in my life to the way that God meant them when he said them. You know, I I don't think that. I pray that God continues to do his work in me and, and in his pastors, his ministers that he's called. You know, but none of us have attained to any of this. He's working in us. He perfects us. The Bible says that he that began a good work, he'll be faithful uh, to complete it, you know. So, uh, you know, don't write me a letter and say, I know you, you know. (laughs) You can write a letter if you want. I'll just agree with you. He goes on to the deacons. Now, the deacons, the the word deacon that he's going to use, the word is diakonos. And it literally just means a servant or an attendant. One of the most crucial points in the life of the early church came just a few months after it began. The church, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, had taken up the responsibility of feeding those that were poor there in Jerusalem. That's a good thing for a church to do if the Holy Spirit directs that church to do it. And and they were doing that. It was part of what God had them doing. And when you deal with things like that, there are going to be issues and conflicts that arise. And it tells us that there were two sets of widows. There were Grecian, Greek Jews, widows, and there were Hebrew or uh, Hellenist widows. And and there were these two groups of widows, and, and the Grecian widows, the Greek widows, began to feel that they were getting slighted. That the Hebrew women were getting most of the food, and if there was anything left over, it was being given to the Greek women, who were kind of looked on maybe as less because they weren't Jewish, they weren't Hebrew. 
And so they brought the, the matter to the apostles and said, hey, this isn't fair. You know, this is supposed to be the, the, the church, and this isn't right what's going on here. And, and in that moment, it was a very crucial point because the church could have been swerved way off course if that wasn't handled the way that it was. But it says that the apostles, the 12, gathered the whole multitude of the disciples around them. And they said, it is not fitting that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. And so Peter spoke and he said, wherefore, look ye out among yourselves. You look out for seven men of honest rapport whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to the word of God and prayer. That was the testimony, the, 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 the decision that was made, is that you look out seven men that we can put over this business of serving tables, but we're going to give ourselves to the word of God in prayer. And this group is what ultimately became what were known as the deacons. And their role in the church was to minister to the practical needs of God's people, to take care of the practical things. The apostles that were the precursors to the pastors and elders, theirs was, their role was to give themselves to the spiritual service of God's people. The feeding of the word of God, intercession and prayer, and, and those spiritual things, whereas the deacons, they dealt with the practical things. They had the same goal, the elders and the deacons, but they did it in different ways. The one attended to the spiritual and the other attended to the physical. And so this was the role of the deacons. Some of, the, some of the happiest times and probably some of the most important times of my own Christian experience were the years that I was a deacon at Calvary Chapel of Greece uh, over in western New York outside of Rochester. You know, being the, 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 able to serve people in an invisible way where nobody knew who I was and nobody cared who I was. You know, but I was able to just learn the value of secret service. And I learned so much as a deacon. I learned that, that if a church is clean and, and a church is in order and things are where they're supposed to be, that people will be able to hear the word of God without being distracted. I, I think I shared this story before. One, there was one uh, visit that my pastor's mother came to visit him from California, and she spent three weeks at the church. And she sat in the front row every service that, while she was there. And after her third week, she was sitting there in the front row, and, and I sat down next to her and, and had a conversation. And, and she looked over at me, and we were just talking, and she said, she said, by the way, whose job is it to clean up around here? And I said, well, um, ma'am, I said, it's mine. I take great honor in what I get to do here. And she said, well, that water cup has been up on the stage for three weeks and I, you know, sunk down. I said, man, that must have been, you know, John does the front of the church. I, I really do the, you know, the sound room. That's, you know. But I learned something from that. I learned that that cup was a distraction from her hearing the word of God. And I learned from that that having a neat and orderly environment for God's people to hear the word of God is just as important as preaching it and teaching it. Because if you're removing a distraction from someone so that they can hear the word of God, then you're contributing to their edification and their growth, and you will be rewarded likewise. And I learned the value of that. And, and it, it's such a blessing here that, you, that we can come here and that we're served, and we don't even know that we're being served in that way. 
And it's a priceless thing. I, I cherish those years. The other thing that I got to do during those years is that while I mopped the floor in the fellowship hall and vacuumed in between the pews and dusted, you know, the, the shelves and the plants and all, all, it's funny, we have to dust plants in the churches in America, you know. But, <laughs> but, but I got to listen with headphones on and go through the entire Bible with Pastor Chuck Smith during those years. And just put the headphones on and listen to sometimes three or four teachings at a time and just let the word of God go into my heart and, and, and just renew my mind from what I was coming out of and to work within me and to prepare me for something I didn't even know was coming yet in the future. So those years were so priceless, you know, and, uh, and here Paul now is talking to these men. He's saying, listen, there's a role, there's a place in the church where, where God does incredible things. But then he gives the qualifications for this uh, here in this section there in verse 8, and he begins by saying, likewise. And that word likewise points us right back to everything that he said to the pastors. You know, that everything that applies to the pastors also applies to the deacons that there's to be a standard. And he said, likewise, must the deacons be grave. And that word grave there, it means honorable and honest. It's interesting, isn't that the first thing that Peter said in Acts chapter 6 when they first appointed deacons? He said, wherefore, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. And that's an important factor or, or trait for someone who's a deacon, that they be people that are honest. They're often ones that deal with church money with church resources. And so it's important that there are people that are honest, that they're honorable. Oftentimes it's the deacons that know who in the church is hurting financially or who is getting a a, a grocery card or who is being helped financially. And it's important that that person have have honor, that they're not a person that is quick to to share that with other people or talk about it or spread that news around. And so it's important that they're honest people and that they're honorable, that they're grave, he says. And then he goes on uh, from there and he says that they must not be double-tongued. And the word means swivel-tongued, literally. And it means that they say one thing about something to one group of people and then they say another thing about that same issue to another group of people that they're they're double-tongued you know in that regard that they're not to be that way that they're supposed to be people of an upright character uh, a straight shooter we would call them that that's the type of person that that can be a deacon and then he says not given to much wine that is that they're not to be dependent upon it they're not to use uh, overuse wine and take liberty in that And then he says, and not greedy of filthy lucre, that they're not either in it for the money, that that's not their motivation to try to to gain something for themselves. And then in verse 9, he says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And that is this, that a deacon is to be as well versed in the word of God, the mysteries of God, as, as a pastor or any other spiritual leader. Is that, that, you know, oftentimes we think, well, they're, they're just the deacons. They don't even need to know how many gospels there are. How many gospels are there? What's, what's an epistle? Isn't that the wife of the apostle? You know, you know and, and that the deacons, they don't need to be spiritual people. No, Paul is saying they need to be spiritual. They need to be holding to the mystery of the faith. And not only do they need to know the word, but they need to be living the word. He says, in a pure conscience. And that means that they're not just hearing it, but that they're living it. There are feet to their faith, these men that are deacons. 
And then he says in verse 10, and let these also first be proved. Now, I want you to notice that there. That's an important phrase that he uses in verse 10. Let me read it again. He says, and let these also first be proved. What that means is that these attributes that Paul is listing, whether it's to the pastor or to the deacon, is that these attributes are to be present first. And then that person is to be given either the office of an elder or the office of a deacon. Let them first be proved. In other words, look at their lives and see if these things are already there. And then you know that that's the person that God has raised up to be the deacon or to be the elder or the pastor in that place. Too many times it happens in a church that someone will be put into a position that isn't maybe quite ready for that position, but they're almost put there on credit, spiritual credit. They're going to grow. We're going to give them this position, and it's going to cause them to grow spiritually. They're going to come up to the next level, and it never works that way. I I heard the story recently uh, of a woman who came to a church for the first time, And she met with the pastor. She called the pastor a few days later, and she said that she walked in, and she just as quickly turned around and walked out of the church. And the pastor said, well, why? And and the answer was that because the man who greeted me at the door tried to pick me up the night before at a nightclub in that town. And so the stakes are high. (laughs) You know, and you you can't... Put someone in a position if you don't know who that person is or what's going on in their life. And so he says, let these people first be proved. Men don't make men pastors or deacons or elders or anything else in the body of Christ. God makes men those things. And then men, other men, recognize what God has done. And that's the way it always has been from Paul's day even to the present day. It's not a list of qualifications that we look at and we try to meet it's something that god works in from the inside into who we are and then it's recognized and and god raises that person up and puts them in that place and, and it's fruitful and it's real and so he says let these first be proved and then let them use the office of a deacon um being found blameless and so then at that point they're they're free to use that office they're they're free in it to uh to 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 serve the people and to serve the lord after they're found blameless and then in verse 11 he says even so must their wives be grave now if you notice in your bible maybe even up on the the screen the words must and there are in italics which means that they're not there in the original language they were put there to make it easier to read but, but what it literally reads in the Greek is, even so must the women be grave. And it, and it speaks, first of all, of those that are deaconesses. And the office of a deacon is not something that is exclusive to be held just by men. There are three women in the New Testament that are specifically named in this fashion. There was the woman uh, Phoebe in Rome, there was Chloe in Corinth, and there was another one, Mary, that Paul mentioned in his epistles. And these women were deaconesses. They were women who served in that office. It's interesting to me that in Acts 6, again, when they first appointed those six first deacons, all six of them were people with a Grecian or Greek background. You read their names. There was Nicanor and, you know, I can't remember all that, but they were all Greek names. 
And that was wise because the issue that was at hand was that there were Greek women that felt like they were being neglected. And so that it was fitting that they would put Greek men in charge of straightening out this complaint that the Greek women had. It was wisdom. And it's sometimes true that there are some things that are to be done in a church that should be done by the women. The meals ministry here at Calvary Chapel. I thank God that that is not run by men. Now, I I have been the beneficiary of the meals ministry before, and I'm not saying that some of the men can't cook or that they shouldn't. I'm not, don't write me any letters. That's not the point. I'm saying I'm thankful that the women handle that here at the church. I'm thankful that the women are in charge of decorating this place. Do you know what this place would look like if I was in charge of decorating it? It would look a lot more like a cracker barrel. You know, there would be like battle armor and double-edged swords, you know, on the wall. And, you know, it would be a completely different scene and you would be distracted. You know, I'm so thankful that the women have... And it's true that there are things in the church. When, when there is a, a, a woman, you know, here in the church in a service that has a crying baby that's sitting in row three. And that baby is distracting whoever's teaching and everybody else in the whole church because that baby is crying. It is a whole lot smoother of a scene when a woman comes and asks that woman to, to take than it is than if, you know, a big intimidating man comes up and says, it's a totally different picture, you know. And so there is a place, you see. And so this allows for that there in the text. But we also look at it in terms of their wives, as it says it. It says, even so, must their wives be grave. The wife of a deacon must be honorable and honest. Understanding that she's hearing and seeing a lot of the things that are going on in the church and that she has the potential to do a lot of damage. She is also not to be a slanderer. The word means devil-tongued. There's a lot of power in the tongue, isn't there? And that she's not to be a slanderer. She's to be sober, which means to possess godly wisdom. And that she's to be faithful in all things. And so Paul talks to these women. And then um, he goes back to the deacons in verse 12. And he says, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. And that is that they should have their home life together as well. They should be integrity, you know, men with integrity, one women men, and that they should be those that also know how to rule their own houses. And then in verse 13, he gives to us the reward of a deacon. You say, what's in it for the deacon? What is the reward of someone who is a deacon? He says, for they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The word that's used there for when he says they that use the office of a deacon well, it's a word that means that they take advantage of the position they've been given for the Lord's cause. Or you could say that they make the most of the opportunity that's afforded them by the position. That's what it means to use the office well, that that they make the most out of the opportunity that they've been given. And it says that they that do that purchase for themselves something and that word purchase means to acquire or to carve out for oneself so they they're they're gaining something they're carving something out for themselves and then he tells us what it is he says it's a good degree and the word there in the greek it means two things and they're both true the first one means a good standing 
is that the person who uses the office of a deacon well is a person who obtains for themselves a good reputation. Someone who selflessly serves people in practical and invisible ways is a person that will become a person of a good reputation. They have a good standing in the faith, in the church. That person who's a deacon. And then he goes on, or the second meaning of it, and I like this because it's true, is, is that the second meaning of that word degree in the Greek, it, it literally means a step. Is that he purchased for himself a step. In the context of it, is that it's, a, it's preparation for advancement to greater ministry. That it's a degree, like we would say someone who advances by degrees or someone who obtains a degree, uh, you know, for their education, that they, they use them to propel themselves into something that, that's greater or something that's coming later. And we see that in the book of Acts. Those first six deacons moved on to become other things in the body of Christ. Stephen became a powerful preacher, probably the most powerful preacher that ever was, because he only preached one sermon. And it was so moving, they killed him instantly. (laughs) (laughs) Philip, who was one of those initial deacons, it tells us that he went on to become a great evangelist, and he had four daughters that were prophets, prophetesses. You know, and so God raised these people up, they used the office of a deacon, and then it prepared them for a greater scope of ministry later on in their life. And, And Paul is saying that those that use the office of a deacon well give for themselves great preparation for the plan that God might have for them later on. And then finally, he says, and great boldness. Great boldness. Where does boldness come from? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, it says that when they saw the boldness, that is the Jews saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Boldness in the Christian life comes from being with Jesus. And someone who spends time growing in their faith and serving in the office of a deacon gains priceless experience in growing with Jesus, walking with Jesus, maturing in Jesus. And Paul says there's a great boldness that comes with that when when you experience the work of God using you, developing you, growing you, and there's, there is a reward of boldness that comes. And then in verse 14, he changes gears as he concludes the chapter. He says, these things I write unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly. But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so all that Paul has written thus far in chapters 1, 2, and 3 has been leading to this point where Paul just says, I've written these things unto you so that you would understand and know, Timothy, the way that the church is to run, who is the head of the church, and who is to be leading the flock of God, the people of God. We'll stop there for tonight because uh, what he says in the second half of the verse about the church being the the pillar and the ground of the truth and then what he says in verse 16, that dovetails very nicely into uh, what he's going to say to them in chapter 4. And so we'll pick up right there next week as we uh, look into what Paul has to say to Timothy next. And it's, it's very fitting for the times as he begins to talk to him about the power of the word of God and also the peril 
of apostasy and those that would turn away from the word of God. So we'll look at that next week, but let's pray together, shall we tonight? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We sit in this place tonight and we have the privilege of sitting under the truth that will never die. That though heaven and earth will pass away, yet your word will never pass away. And I pray that, Lord, the things that you have spoken to us tonight about the character of a godly man and woman, that these things would be ever increasingly a part of our lives. I pray tonight, Lord, for the men that are in this this place, that you would put in them an unction, that you would put in them a challenge, Lord, a conviction, that there's more to the Christian faith than just sitting in a pew or wearing a name, saying that we are Christians, but that there is a life in Jesus that so far exceeds that of just calling ourselves by you. I pray, Father, that you would even now, by the power of your spirit, just give gifts, give inspiration, give calling. I pray for the women here tonight, Lord. I pray that they would be filled and stirred. That you would give them wisdom as they consider the calling that you've placed upon them for their families, for their husbands, or if they're younger, for their future and the plan that you have. I'm so thankful tonight, Jesus, that you walk with each one of us individually that you know us by name, that you count the number of hairs that are on our head. And so we pray, Father, that you would give each one of us an eternal perspective, eternal vision, and help us to see our lives in the light of eternity, that we might make the most of the time that we have on this earth, of the talents that you've given to each one of us, and the truth that we've been exposed to in the Word of God. And so I pray your blessing upon each person here, That even right now, Lord, your Holy Spirit would rest upon each person. That you would fill them with the supernatural peace that passes understanding. That they would experience the love that passes knowledge. That they would experience such close fellowship with you. Such close intimacy with you. That their lives for everything on this earth would just dissolve away that they would live completely for heaven. I pray for each one, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share our faith as we go throughout the rest of the week. That you give us opportunities to serve in practical and invisible ways those that even around us in our neighborhoods, Lord, are without power or have needs. Give us the grace. And Lord, I pray that you would go with us tonight as we leave we would leave here in awe of you, in love with your word, inspired by your truth. Be glorified in our lives, be magnified, and we thank you, Lord, for this time we've got to spend. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.